If you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to turn to the New Testament now, to our main scripture reading, which is Ephesians chapter 1. We're starting today a series that's going to go all the way to the summertime in the book of Ephesians. That's a kind of a little while, but I, I want to go a little slow through this letter. It's such a wonderful letter. Uh, somebody has called it the Mount Everest of the Bible. The Mount Everest of the Bible, meaning it's the highest peak. Uh, it gives you the most glorious view of Jesus and the work that he did for us. And I think that's true. Uh, somebody also said this. Uh, think about it. This letter is God's spiritual remedy to radically improve the spiritual health of your church and of every ministry within it. Uh, that's pretty cool. Uh, I think we all want to improve our spiritual health, don't we? Uh, we talked about that in January, what it means to grow as Christians. Well, let's look at this letter, which supposedly is the Mount Everest of the Bible and is supposed to be able to impart health to our, to our lives. And so let me read verses 1 to 6, excuse me, <clears throat> uh, starting... In chapter 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. In 2011, uh, some private investigators were hired to find a missing person. Uh, Max Melitzer was the missing person. Nobody in his family knew where he was because he had been homeless for years. And he kind of went from city to city uh, sleeping on the streets. He had a lot of mental health issues, as is often the case. Uh, with folks who find themselves homeless. Um, but these private investigators were hired by some of the family members and, and the lawyers of the family to find him, and they finally tracked him down. Uh, he was in Salt Lake City, Utah, uh, living on the streets. Must have been cold. Uh, when they found him, they delivered him an unusual message. They said, Max, your brother has died, and he left you everything. He left you all his wealth. In fact, he, he left it in such a way that he planned it out over the years how much you would get. He's got a place for you to live. He's got a basic income to get you back on your feet. He's got all the mental health resources already paid for from his wealth. Congratulations, Max. You're a rich man. That story got a lot of press in 2011. I don't know if you remember it, but it was covered by almost every channel, every newspaper around. Think about why. Um, it's a great story, number one, obviously, because it's a great example of brotherly love, right? We've got to say that. But it's also a great story because it's interesting to think, what would it be like to receive a message that life-changing? I mean, what would it be like to discover you were that much more wealthy than you ever imagined you were? What would that change in your life? Well, I, I, it would change everything, I think. It looks like it did for Max. 
I think that is exactly the reason why the Apostle Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians. Uh, Paul was sitting in a Roman prison when he wrote it. So things were not going very well for him, but he still had his confidence in Jesus. He was writing to new Christians in the city of Ephesus. Things weren't going that well for them either because the city was not very friendly to the Christian faith, which was new at that time. And Paul says, look, here's my conviction. Every single Christian is richer than they think they are. I'm not talking about, he's not talking about physical riches. In fact, material wealth is nothing compared to the wealth he's talking about. It's like nothing compared to the spiritual wealth that he wants to describe in this letter. And he's saying there's not a Christian on the planet who fully grasps the immensity of what they have been given and how they have been given it. But if they would just grasp it just a little bit more today than they did yesterday, it will impart to them great amounts of spiritual health, spiritual life, and vibrancy. This morning, are you feeling a little dead spiritually? I don't know if you are or not. Are you feeling a little bit weak spiritually or afraid or down this is the perfect letter for you. This is the message coming from the private investigator saying, look, you're richer than you thought. Get off the streets. Because God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has communicated to you an inheritance that will never fade or never perish. Now, in the verses that we read today, Paul wants to focus on God the Father. Do you see that there in verse 3? He says, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's really interesting, uh, if you have a Bible, look at verses 3 all the way to verse 14. That's a long section, right? That is one sentence in Greek. One whole, that's one sentence. Paul just couldn't stop, you know. Uh, sometimes he has the tendency to do run-on sentences. right? His, his Greek teacher probably got on to him for that, but he just kept doing it anyway. It's like Paul right out of the gate. It's like, I got something to tell y'all. You're more wealthy than you think, and I'm just going to keep telling you. And he goes from Father to Son and to Holy Spirit in order to tell you, here's what the Father did for you to save you. Here's what the Son did for you. Here's what the Spirit did for you. And this morning, we want to talk about what the Father did for you. Two words in, in the passage today that are, you, you'll notice are pretty controversial. First of all, in verse 3, he says, God the Father chose you before the foundation of the world. And then he says uh, there also in verse 4, God, or 5, excuse me, God the Father predestined you for adoption through Jesus Christ. Those two words, election and predestination, are very controversial. I'm not going to pretend they're not. And yes, we are going to talk about them today. Uh, some of y'all know, maybe you don't know, we are a Presbyterian church. Um, this is one of the crown jewels of our faith, I think. But my point today is not to make you a Presbyterian. That's not my main point. My point today is to ask the question, is, what does Paul mean by this? What is he trying to communicate to us about what the Father did for us in eternity to save us? And so three questions today, if you look at your bulletin. First of all, we want to see what does God's election and predestination mean? What does it mean? Secondly, why does it matter? And lastly, how can we embrace it personally or embrace it for ourselves, okay? I know there's going to be questions left. Come see me. I'd love to talk to you offline. I've only got a limited time this morning, so show me mercy, too. Show me mercy. All right, first of all, 
Uh, what does God's election or God's uh, predestination, as Paul says, mean? Well, notice how he starts the whole letter. I think it's a clue to what he means. Uh, there in verse 1, look at how he described himself. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. Do you notice that? By the will of God. In Paul's own self-understanding, he thought, I'm an apostle. Why am I an apostle? Because God wanted me to be an apostle. God chose me to be an apostle. God came to me when I was not a fan of Jesus at all, to say the least, right? If you don't know, Paul killed Christians when, before he became a Christian because he hated the message of Jesus. Paul says, nevertheless, it was God's will to come and intercept me in the course of my action, to stop me, to turn me from hating Jesus to loving Jesus. And so I'm an apostle of Jesus by the will of God. Well, there in verse 3 and 4 and 5, when he says God chose you too and he predestined you from before the foundation of the world, he's saying, I'm not the only one that God did this with. In fact, what God did for me is just a model for what God does to every single person who becomes a believer in Jesus. You are a Christian, if you're a Christian, not because you first chose God. You chose God. Yes, you did. And if you haven't chose to serve Jesus, I really commend that to you this morning. You must put your faith in Jesus Christ to be saved. But you choose Jesus Christ because God first put his choice on you and elected you and predestined you to be one of his very own children. That was Paul's conviction about himself. And Paul says, look, you're more rich than you think you are because God did that very same thing for you. He intercepted you and turned you radically from the way you were going to the way he wanted you to go. Now, if you want a, like a clue or a, a, I guess you could call it a tip on how to read the Bible well, notice in the Bible parallels. Okay, parallels. The Bible loves parallel statements. That is, it makes a statement and then it follows it right up with another one that means the same thing, but it says it in a different way. That's why some people think the Bible is repetitive. It just repeats itself over and over. It kind of talks in circles. And it seems that way because it's using parallels all the time. Now, we do that today, too. We just don't do it as much as they did. Like I might say to you, um, it was pitch black dark last night. I went outside and I couldn't see my hand in front of my face. That's a parallel statement. I said the same thing twice. I didn't really have to say it twice, but I did. Why? Because I wanted you to really, because why? Because I'm a preacher? <laughs> Is that what somebody said? <laughs> no, I said it twice because I wanted, <laughs> I, I, I wanted to make sure that you, got, you got, really got it, how dark it was. Not only was it pitch black, but I couldn't even see the hand in front of my face. Same thing in two different ways. And so there in verses 4 and 5, when God says, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before Him. And then in verse 5, He predestined us for adoption as sons to Himself through Jesus Christ. It's saying the exact same thing in two different ways. To be chosen by God, to be to be selected, I mean, y'all know what chosen means, is the same thing as this bigger word, predestined. Uh, literally, the word predestined in Greek means to order beforehand, to fix ahead of time. 
And the idea here is that God has always worked off of a plan in every single thing that he does. Before the world was made, he had a blueprint of what he wanted to do in the world and how he wanted the world to go. And a part of that blueprint and plan was how he was going to save sinners. And it was even who was going to be saved, who was going to be brought into heaven one day into the family of God. He knew us by name. He chose us. He selected us. He ordered ahead of time that we would be adopted as children into his family. And to top it all off, Paul says at the end of verse 5, he did it according to the purpose of his own will. It's the very same thing he had said about himself in verse 1. I'm an apostle by the will of God. You too are a Christian according to the purpose of God's will. Now that word purpose is great. The word is literally pleasure. The pleasure of his will. The King James Version, the old King James, even translates it that way. You were saved according to the good pleasure of God's will. And that expresses something, that God didn't have to do this. It wasn't something he was forced to do or did based on considerations outside of himself. It was something that he freely chose to do out of his sheer mercy and grace. Now you say, okay, is this really what Paul is saying? I think it is because Paul says this not just here but many other places. In fact, there's other places he says this even more strongly than here. Like in... um, Romans 8, it says, Those that God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. And so all things work for the good of those who are called according to his will, according to his purpose. Then in chapter 9 of Romans, he says, God has mercy on whom he will, and he hardens whomever he will. And there he's referring to the Old Testament. So Paul didn't just make this up. Jesus taught it. The Old Testament taught it. Jesus said, God the Father gave me people before the world was made, and I came into the world to save those he gave me. He talks about his sheep all the time. I'm a shepherd. I've got a flock. That flock was given to me before the world even existed. God entrusted those people to me, and I came into this world to redeem them, all those that would come to believe in my name from the beginning of time, To the end of time, those are my sheep. I know them and they know me. They hear my voice and they follow me. In the Old Testament, we we read earlier in the service when Israel asked, God, why did you choose us of all people? Why did you choose our little tiny nation to deliver us out of Egypt and to give us a promised land? And God says, it wasn't because you were a big country, because you're not. It wasn't because you're very righteous, because you're not. In fact, you're stubborn and you drive me crazy. I chose you because I love you. As God said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Now, one quickly, one misunderstanding of this teaching. Uh, One common misunderstanding is, okay, I know what Paul's saying. He's saying, God looked ahead and saw all of us, and he saw who would believe in Jesus and who wouldn't. He saw who would uh, cooperate with his grace and who wouldn't. And God chose to save those who would cooperate and chose not to save those who wouldn't cooperate. I think that's a misunderstanding. I think it actually kind of cancels out everything Paul says there. I mean, for example, in verse 4, he says, God chose us 
that we should be holy and blameless, not because we were in some way more holy and blameless than the next person, which would be the case if God simply chose the people that were just a little bit better. Right? A, a Christian can't say, I'm a Christian because I'm just a little bit better than you or a lot better than you. It's not true. A Christian is better than no one. In fact, oftentimes Christians are worse. They're just saved by grace. Right? And that, that causes a lot of people a lot of heartburn and problems. And, and you know, in, some, in some ways it should. But nevertheless, God is gracious, way more gracious than we ever imagined him to be. It wasn't that God looked down time and said, hey, let me, let me respond to the choices people are going to make in the future. God's way bigger than that. God said, let me make a choice that ensures at the end of time, my purpose of my will will be fully satisfied and fully completed. Well, that's one misunderstanding. One objection, though, and I know some of y'all are thinking it, this ain't fair. I mean, if this is really what Paul's teaching, how is it fair? And y'all, I understand that objection, right? I mean, listen, when I first heard this, I thought it was crazy too, right? And I thought, wow, this is really not fair. But, but this is what I discovered, and I actually discovered it from this passage. Fairness is not the question. Fairness is not the question. Um, you say, what do you mean by that? Okay. The Bible is extremely clear. God is the fairest of all. Not like Snow White in that sense, but he's the fairest of all in the justice sense, in the righteousness sense. Meaning, God never withholds from anyone anything that he owes them. God has no unpaid bills. None. Ever. In all of history. God never uh, treats someone worse than they deserve to be treated, ever. He's never done it. He's never even thought to do it. God is perfectly fair. Fairness is not the question here, though. Why? Because we're a people that God has to make holy and blameless before him. Meaning what? We're not holy and blameless before him. Meaning, grace and mercy, just like when you show grace and mercy, is not something that you ever owe it's never an issue of fairness. It's always an issue of freeness. In fact, if grace were owed, the Bible says, it would not be grace. That's uh, Romans chapter 10 and 11. If grace is owed, it's not grace. When you owed someone something, that's called wages. It's called wages. When you can come to somebody and say, hey, I worked, give me my due, that's wages. When someone gives you grace, it ain't wages. It's freeness. It's the good pleasure of God's will. And so, as painful as it is, and y'all, I'm not saying that this, this teaching is not hard to accept or hard to swallow or it doesn't raise a ton of questions that we can never answer. I agree it does. But what I'm, all I'm trying to ask is, is this what Paul is teaching? Do you think what I'm saying accurately reflects what he's saying? And don't you see that it magnifies the grace of God like almost nothing else does? Right? All right, if that's the case, keep tracking with me, and let's look at why this matters for us to see it. Because uh, someone might say, all right, this is, this is deep stuff. Man, I've never thought this deep about God and about eternity and what he chose to do before I was ever born. I don't even like thinking about it because it makes me feel so small. In fact, it makes me doubt whether I would ever be chosen. So I don't even want to think about it. Okay, 
I get that too. But notice the reason Paul gives for why this matters so much to your spiritual life. Uh, Look there at uh, verse uh, 6. Paul gives us the reason why he's telling us this. God chose us in Christ and predestined us, why? To the praise of his glorious grace. This matters because God's praise matters. In fact, the Bible makes a really big deal of this. It uses different words about it. It uses praise, and sometimes it even uses the word boast. What you boast in is what you praise, and what you praise is what you boast in. The two words mean the same thing, and it makes a huge deal out of this issue. It's what someone praises tells you everything you need to know about the person. What they boast in tells you everything. In fact, what's wrong with our lives, what's wrong with your life and my life, really hinges on what I praise and boast in versus what I don't praise and boast in. The world is full of violence and hatred and greed and all manner of wickedness. Why? Because people boast in themselves. I boast in myself apart from God rather than boasting in the God who made me. It's the very essence of sin. And so wouldn't it make sense that God would want to communicate the truth to us in such a way, to such a degree, that it would be able to radically transform our heart from a self-centered, self-boasting to God-boasting. And when I recognize that my salvation did not first depend on me, it depended on God, that more than anything else teaches my heart to chill out about myself. Stop boasting in me like I'm so prone to do, And start for once boasting in how great God is and how good and how generous he is. Do you remember how it was on the playground when you were a kid and you went to play kickball and the coach picked the two most popular kids and said, you pick the teams? Remember that? And the nervous moment when they started picking? Because they always picked according to merit, right? Uh, Or at least what they perceived merit. The players they thought were the best were picked first, and the ones that they thought were scrubs got picked last. That's the, I call that the law of the playground. And um, I don't think we outgrow that very much. Because if you think about your office, your plant where you work, you know, your classroom and school where you work, wherever it ha- happens to be your work, your warehouse, your, your factory, think about that place. Doesn't it also kind of operate by the law of the playground? Right? You get what you earn. Just simple fairness. No mercy, no grace, no compassion. Just you are who you are. You get what you earn. And the, be- and the people that are popular get everything. And the people that aren't popular get forgotten. The church ought to be the one place on God's green earth where the law of the playground has been displaced forever. Right? Why? How can the law of the playground be displaced? Only if we understand who did the choosing and why. When the teams got picked, trust me, it wasn't in the hands of the popular kid who's a jerk. Praise God. (laughs) And And it wasn't even in my own hands. Praise God. If God had left me to my own choice... I would not have chosen Jesus. I wouldn't have. Praise God he didn't. 
Praise God, he said, you know what? I'm going to do the choosing, and I'm going to choose not on the basis of merit. I'm going to choose on the basis of my good pleasure, my love. The Bible even says there's going to be one day in heaven a multitude that no man can number who've been chosen by God. I think that encourages us to remember this doesn't mean God's picked a tiny little group, a small group. (laughs) I think there's reason to believe heaven's going to be more full than hell. And I love that thought. I love that thought. But a multitude that no man can number. What a beautiful thing. God came and he chose on that basis so that the law of the playground could be displaced. So that finally, me on the throne could get down from the throne and let God be God. Which is, which is the whole basis of my spiritual health, right? Uh, one writer says there's two kinds of religion in the world. There's N-shaped religion, like a lowercase n, and there's U-shaped religion. He says, every religion except the gospel, except the gospel of Jesus Christ, is N-shaped. And that means this. The person comes and offers a gift or a sacrifice to God, which God then has to repay with blessing. Most people, even people who, even a lot of people who say that they're Christians, operate that way. I give God something, he owes me something else. It's like a quid pro quo, you know, like a deal that I'm cutting with God. Every other religion on the planet operates that way. The gospel of Jesus Christ flips it to the U-shape. God first blesses me, and my life becomes just a return back on the other side of thanksgiving to him, of gratitude, of joy, of love, because he first loved me. John says, this is not what love is, that I love God. It's that God loved me. He loved me first. And because he loved me, my life is one, can, can be one long expression of my love back to him. The, the in turned around and flipped to become the you. Humility, confidence, holiness, those ought to be the things that, that, that my heart gets encouraged with when I remember God chose me in Christ. That God has ordered my steps ahead of me. That my last day and my eternity is in God's hands. Not in the hands of men. Not in my hands. That ought to humble me. That ought to give me confidence. That ought to to fuel me to want to live a holy life. Not to get something back from God as payment, but to express my gratitude for what he's already given me. And y'all, I want to tell you, that is the most critical thing that can change in your life to lead from spiritual deadness to spiritual health. Go from an N-shape to a U-shape. Quit trying to buy God off. Amen? Quit trying to buy him off. He can't be bought off. He knows the truth about you. And he knows the truth about me. He can't be bought off. But here's what he will do. Open up your hand and he'll fill it with riches by his grace. He'll fill it. Open up your hand. He'll fill it with his riches. And then you'll have something from him that you can offer back as a thanksgiving. Amen? All right. Lastly this morning, and i got to move along here, Uh, I want to look at how we can embrace this for ourselves. Because you might still say, all right, maybe you're telling me the truth, Stan. Maybe. I'm I'm to that point. I'm I'm a maybe. How could I ever kind of get over the hump of believing this and not feeling like it's just not fair and it's just too depressing? Here's how. One old pastor said this. He says, when you you think about election, you got to remember Christ is the mirror 
of our election. He's the mirror. I say, well, what do you mean? If you think you have something on your face, like you were eating and you think you got something on there, but you're not sure because you can't be sure because you can't see yourself, the only way to find out is what? Look in the mirror. You might ask somebody that's honest. You can't just ask anybody, though, because there are people out there that will just be like, no, you're good. Right? It's, you're fine. You're good. And they know that you're not. You can't. So you need a mirror because a mirror doesn't lie. And you, or you need to take a picture of yourself. We can do that today. That's the only way. This old pastor said Jesus is like the mirror. We might say he's like the, the camera that takes the picture of yourself that shows you, that reflects back to you whether you have been chosen, whether you are a part of God's family or not. Uh, in fact, let me tell you this. I'll warn you. Do not approach it this way. I'll come to Jesus if I can figure out whether I'm chosen. No, 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 no. You start going in that path, you'll never get out of that maze. Because the choice of God, the plans of God in eternity are God's plans. I mean, you don't know them. I don't know them. No one knows them. And we shouldn't try to know them. God doesn't tell us to know them. That's not why Paul's writing this from prison. So that you would speculate on God's eternal choices. No. The only thing that we're told in the Bible is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And so when we look to Christ in faith, we're looking in a mirror. To not only see Jesus, we're seeing us in Jesus. We're seeing us in communion with Jesus. Where everything that Jesus is and has done has been now shared and given over to us. Do you see it? Every Christian has that day where they were engrafted into Christ. They became a part of Jesus by faith. You might not remember exactly what that day is. That's not the important point. But you've got that day. I mean, you were engrafted into Christ at some point. And every Christian has an ongoing living relationship with God where they can always look in the mirror and not only see them, themselves, but see Jesus and themselves in union. Here's how that works. Uh, notice what Paul says at the end of verse 6. This is why I'm saying all this. He says, the glorious grace of God has, he, God has blessed us with it in the beloved, with a capital B. He's talking about Jesus. God only gives his grace in Jesus. And in Jesus, he always gives his grace. There's no one who will come to Christ who will be turned away. All who come to me, Jesus says, all who come to me, I will know and no way cast out. I will hold you in my hands and no one will ever be able to pluck you from my hands if you come to me. And so when we look to Jesus every day of our lives, when we seek him, we see that even as he is beloved, I'm beloved. Because he shared his belovedness with me. Right? The hope of, of Liliana and her family is not that some water was put onto her today. It's that Jesus, who was also circumcised and baptized as a, as a child and as a young man, lived a perfect life for her that then by faith gets credited to her as if it were hers. Same thing with Chris and Lydia and all of us as Christians. It's that Jesus is pure and perfect, therefore we are counted that way. It's that he had the Holy Spirit working in him to make him a perfect person so that we can be assured when I look in that mirror, I've also got the Holy Spirit making me different little by little 
which grows in me this assurance. You know what? If I'm a Christian, I'm certainly not a Christian because my neighbor who's not a Christian is less than me. Or because God saw something in me, even if it was the tiniest little good thing that he didn't see in that person. It's not that. God simply, I don't know why he chose what he chose. That's God's secret. But God simply decided to come to me and intercept me in the direction I was headed to turn me back around to a better direction. Have you been tracking this morning? Uh, I, I realize this is controversial. I realize you may still have questions. I'm happy to interact with you and talk to you about it. But I, I, my heart for you is not that you'd be caught in the controversy and the inner debate maybe that you're having or the debate that you want to have with me later, which is okay if you do. That's fine. But don't get caught in that. First of all, humble yourself. That's what God wants. Humble yourself to just try to listen to what God is communicating in Scripture. Okay? And, you know, I'll be the first to admit I'm not, I can be wrong about things, right? I'm not always right. Y'all know that. <laughs> so the, the real question this morning is not what does Stan say? Or what does the Presbyterian Church or the Protestant Church say or has said, right? What does the Bible say? What does the Holy Spirit say? And what is God wanting to do in my heart by what he says? Would you pray with me this morning?